Here, so Ricky Vaughan has been convicted for memeing, <laughs> for, for posting the most ridiculous memes. And my greatest worry here is that uh, trying to convict uh, Ricky Vaughan for posting memes, it casts negative aspersions upon Black and Latino intelligence because what he got convicted for was uh, posting messages to Black and Latino voters saying that they could vote simply by sending in a text message. They could vote for Hillary simply sending in a text message. And the Washington Post very helpfully tells us that uh, that voting via text message, message is a, it's not a valid voting method. I'm so glad the, the Washington Post, you know, let us know that because I thought, you know, I, I was unsure. Maybe it is valid maybe it's not this news story was written by amy b wong and shana jacobs trump supporter found guilty in 2016 twitter scheme to undermine hillary clinton douglas mackey a supporter of former president donald trump who used twitter to disseminate false information to redirect would-be voters of hillary clinton in the 2016 presidential election was convicted friday on a charge of conspiracy against rights the brooklyn u.s attorney's office announced a federal jury issued the verdict after a week-long trial in New York. Mackey, 33, faces 10 years in prison. Today's verdict proves that the defendant's fraudulent actions crossed a line into criminality and flatly rejects his cynical attempt to use the constitutional right of free speech as a shield for his scheme to subvert the ballot box and suppress the vote, Breon Peace, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, said in a statement. In the months leading up to the 2016 presidential election, prosecutors said Mackey used a Twitter alias with about 58,000 followers, at Ricky underscore Vaughn 99, reportedly derived from actor Charlie Sheen's character Ricky Vaughn in the 1989 film Major League, to circulate messages on Twitter that encouraged Clinton's supporters to vote via text message or social media, methods that were not valid. Oh, wow. For example, on November 1, 2016, in or around the same time that Mackey was sending tweets suggesting the importance of limiting black turnout, the defendant tweeted an image depicting an African-American woman standing in front of an African-Americans for Hillary sign, the U.S. Attorney's Office said. The deceptive ad stated, avoid the line. Vote from home, text Hillary to 59,900. Yeah, and I'm sure that just really swayed a lot of votes. Anyone who it did sway, wouldn't you rather not have them voting anyway? So this is Breon Pierce. This is the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York. This is the guy who says, Today's verdict, all right, because this guy posted memes, proves that the defendant's fraudulent actions, all right, he told people, he posted memes, that they could vote via text message, right? So satire is illegal, right? That his fraudulent actions crossed a line into criminality and flatly rejects his cynical attempt to use the constitutional right of free speech as a shield for his scheme to subvert the ballot box and suppress the vote. So he is saying that this scheme suppressed the vote because the people who are targeted by this scheme were so stupid that they thought it was for real. So 
this guy is saying that black and Latinos who bought this meme and just voted via text message are morons. Right? This is what this guy is saying. Right? He's saying that uh, people see a meme saying that you can just vote for Hillary via a text message and they can't figure out that it's just an online meme. Breon Pierce. What? You know, what a giant. And yet Nicholas McQuaid, who went to Columbia Law School and is now Joe Biden's assistant attorney general, made that claim anyway, verbatim, and did so with a straight face. Quote, Douglas Mackey, threat to democracy. So he faces 10 years in prison. The DOJ press release said that. Three paragraphs later, the same press release inadvertently acknowledged what was actually going on. In the run-up to the 2016 election, the DOJ explained, Douglas Mackey had gained more influence on Twitter than either NBC News or, gasp, Stephen Colbert himself. Now, the criminal complaint against Douglas Mackey actually spells that out. You can read it for yourself. It's still online. The Biden administration argued that on Twitter, people liked Douglas Mackey more than they liked NBC News or Stephen Colbert. Now, that may not seem bad to you. It may seem fine, having grown up as you did in a country where people were allowed to choose what they read. But according to the government Joe Biden now runs, that's a felony. Bad view, it may seem. Now, you don't have to be a right winger to find that terrifying. In a free country, you have an absolute right to say what you think in public, period. Doesn't matter who is offended by what you say. It doesn't matter if people consider your views ugly. Even if every person on the planet. So it's kind of amazing to see that the difference between uh, right wing and left wing reactions to this Doug Mackey story. People in the center, people on the left think, it's, oh, yeah, absolutely appropriate. Let's prosecute this guy. Let's convict this guy for posting memes because we have to protect vulnerable black and Latino voters. You might see one of these memes and think that they can save time, save hassle, and, and just vote by sending a, a text message. So this is how NBC handles it. He's a notorious Twitter troll. A notorious Twitter troll was arrested Whoa. on federal charges of election interference. Douglas Mackey, also known by his online alter ego, Ricky Vaughn. Okay, so the trolling was he would post images of a black woman saying, you don't have to go to the polls to vote. You can just send in a text message. I mean, that's really heavy duty trolling. I mean, how, how outrageous is that? is accused of a voter disinformation campaign during the 2016 election. The arrest represents what could be a big change in how the federal government fights election interference. NBC News investigative reporter Brandy Zadrozny joins us now. So, Brandy, first of all, tell us about the election disinformation campaign that Mac... She's a fun lady, isn't she? He is accused of orchestrating what did he allegedly do. So, yeah, Mackey is accused of having used Twitter to um, coordinate with other trolls in these private spaces, private group chats. One was called War Room. Um, and he's accused of spreading disinformation, specifically that voters could cast their ballots via social media and text. Um, How do you not break out laughing when you do this story? That he's being convicted for saying that people could vote via sending text messages. This one was specifically aimed at black and Latino voters. You could tell because he used memes with black people and ones written in Spanish, allegedly. Now, basically, you know, what this guy did is what we're all really familiar with from the Russian Internet Agency. They created fake posts. They said that, you know, in these posts that certain. Yeah, only, only Russians could think of something so destructive to American democracy. 
only Russians could come up with with a meme so perfidious. Lads were on the Trump train, for instance, right? Where they created fake advertising campaigns for Hillary Clinton, where they were like, um, we're going to draft your daughters into the armed forces. Um, or, you know, like we just said, the lies about when and where people can vote. And just like the Russian campaign, we've been saying forever, there's a homegrown alt-right disinformation campaign, and it was aimed at electing Donald Trump. And quickly, Brandy, we really haven't seen the federal government policing election interference on social media posts before. But what could this mean for the fight against misinformation moving forward, especially if he's convicted? Well, Joe, we have. It's just that it's not been aimed at us, right? The the people working for the Internet Research Agency in Russia face federal charges. It's just that now we're look. The DOJ is looking into our own backyard. As for what it means, you know, there were several um, unnamed co-conspirators in there uh, in the complaint, but they did include their Twitter IDs. So we have sort of have an idea of who else was in this chat room, and um, those people should be. She is glowing. I mean, she loves this story. Look at how happy she is by this news. Pretty afraid. I think it you know, also sends the message that these disinformation campaigns have real consequences. We know you'll stay on it, Brandy. Wow, we know you'll stay on it. Thank you, Brandy Zadrozny. Thank you. Thank you so much. So looking at Twitter, over the course of this week alone, they failed parades in honor of trannies after one shot up a school, indicted Donald Trump, condemned a man to prison for posting memes. Response, this sets the new standard, boys. If you're not incarcerated, your, your, memes, your memes must suck. Now, Charles Johnson posts, uh, Douglas Mackey, a.k.a. Ricky Vaughan, worked for Chinese Israeli intelligence ops within the U.S. Today he receives justice. So Charles Johnson thinks this is great. And then Bronze Age pervert responds. Uh, Chuck Johnson is an FBI informant. Here he is admitting it in a court filing. And it's true. Johnson, who is also a confidential informant for the FBI. Uh, so Richard Spencer responds to the Doug Mackey conviction with a thumbs up. Like Richard Spencer thinks it's great that Ricky Vaughn is convicted for posting memes on Twitter. I mean, I can understand wanting mainstream acceptance. I can understand wanting to regain a position in polite society. I can understand wanting to turn my back on, you know, all my, you know, neo-Nazi activities and having hundreds of people, you know, Heil Hitler me and, you know, getting a tremendous thrill from it. Like, I can understand Richard Spencer wanting to turn his back on many of his more destructive activities over the past few years, but that he would support that he would give a thumbs up for convicting a guy for posting memes. I mean, that that is a really desperate, really desperate attempt to to uh, sanitize yourself. I mean, he throws himself in with Brandy Zadrozny. Richard Spencer thinks it's great that people can get convicted for posting memes, right? Richard Spencer would obviously like to see a lot more people convicted for posting memes. Because why? Why does Richard Spencer think this way? Well, prior to 2017, when there were memes about Richard Spencer posted online, they were positive. Then after 2018, when there were memes, well, maybe after, maybe, yeah, sometime in 2017, 
memes about Richard Spencer getting posted online became overwhelmingly negative. And then Richard suddenly changed his attitude towards free speech. He became much more in favor of censorship. Now he thinks it's great that a guy is convicted solely for posting memes. So Richard would obviously like to see a lot more people convicted go to prison for posting memes. And the, you know, the one factor that, that jumps out at me is that memes used to be pro-Richard Spencer, but when they turned anti-Richard Spencer, then Richard completely changed his attitude towards free speech, free expression, and, and memeing. So now he thinks you know, apparently memeing is a threat to the republic. Uh, just, just incredible. I mean, I can't. I mean, what kind of person thinks it's great to convict someone for posting memes? So he initially was was shocked. After he got over that, um, he, he, you know, he put a notch on his belt, and he, uh, you know. He decided we have to fight now. President Trump will not take a plea deal in this case. It's not going to happen. There's no crime. I don't know if it's going to make the trial because we have substantial legal challenges that we have to, to front before we get to that point. With that, let's bring in our panel. Marie Harf, former State Department spokeswoman under President Obama. Julia Manchester, national pol politics reporter for The Hill. And Ben Dominich, editor-at-large for The Spectator and host of the Ben Dominich podcast on Fox News Radio. Panelists, welcome. Julia, you want to lead us off on the indictment and where we are at the end of the week? Yeah, at the end of the week, I think there's a lot of drama really infiltrating so many parts of Washington. But for my beat, we've been focusing on 2024 and how mm -hmm. it's impacting that race. And I think this indictment has forced everyone else in the race except Donald Trump to essentially acknowledge it. And in a way, almost bend the knee to Trump to acknowledge that, um, you know, they side with him, that he's wrong. Even Ron DeSantis in a tweet mentioned that without mentioning his name, but attacked Alvin Bragg. So I think a lot of these Republican players in the primary or in potential primary were trying to step away from Trump as much as possible. But now this is the big issue. Ben, your thoughts on the political impact and where we are at the end of the week? The two categories of people who I found to be the most giddy over the last 24 hours or so in response to this uh, were the same crew of people who seemed to be feeling that way at virtually every twist and turn during the Russiagate investigation on the left, and then the people on the right who are the most emphatically in favor of Donald Trump being the nominee of the Republican Party. Both sides uh, feel like this is going to be something that plays to their advantage. The people who I felt uh, hearing from were the most skeptical about that were a lot of my friends who frankly wish that this was not something that Democrats were running with against the former president. They believe that it's going to be all the more likely to see uh, him eventually becoming the nominee, and they're concerned that this is not the most powerful case that they could be using against him. Frankly, from my uh, perspective, regardless of the immediate short-term or long-term benefit, uh, or harm to the president, I doubt that a year and a half from now, any voter is going to be going to the polls, making their decision about the next president of the United States based on this case. Marie, does this case need to deliver? And what about Democrats who came out before we know what's in the indictment strongly in favor of it? Well, none of us know what's in the indictment. Reporting is that it's about 30 charges, some of which include felonies, but we will see on Tuesday. And they could include some serious financial crimes, not just, you know, writing checks to the woman he had an affair with, but some serious financial crimes about his business. The bigger picture, though, Mike, is that Donald Trump faces incredible legal challenges, not just here. You know, I agree with Ben that this may not be legally the most uh, tough case for Trump. Mm -hmm. He has multiple other 
criminal investigations open against him, whether it's in Georgia, whether it's over January 6th, whether it's over the classified documents he took to Mar-a-Lago. So a year and a half from now, when primary voters are looking at who they want to be, you know, who we want to be president first in the primary and then in the general, I have to believe that there are Republicans, maybe they don't say it to pollsters, but who believe this is a distraction, that Donald Trump has always been reckless, and that while Joe Biden is out talking about manufacturing jobs this week that he's bringing back to America, Donald Trump is being indicted for 30 charges. We will see when the primary starts, but I have to believe that the more of this that's coming Trump's way, and I believe there will be more legal trouble for him, this has to, to play a role here. There have been some leaks. We will see what the charges are when they're unveiled. Exactly. Uh, another big issue at the end of the week, Russia and the U.S. with the Russian regime taking a Wall Street Journal colleague of ours. Uh, Julia, what about that? Okay. So let's have a look at the chat. Uh, Bernard says the process is the punishment with regard to Trump's indictment. I'm sure when you're born in 1946, like Donald Trump, you're not really going to see the long-term benefit of being indicted in 2023. So apparently there are more than 30 counts that he's being indicted on. And just uh, amazing, amazing story. Keep it, keep an eye on it. And uh, I'm sure Doug Mackey, a.k.a. Ricky Vaughn, is going to appeal. And I would expect that he would win his appeal. I mean, this idea that you can be convicted for, for just posting memes is absurd. But uh, it's also kind of sad that Ricky Vaughn, you know, walked away from the game. He essentially got intimidated, lost his social connections, a social, social status when he was doxxed and revealed. And then he just walked away from social media and campaigning. So who blew the whistle on Ricky Vaughn? Was it uh, Paul Nealon? He was, uh, he was involved in some doxing. Paul Nealon warned us. Okay, I want to get back to this interesting article in American Greatness, How Hard Work Destroys Character, The Case Against Making Talented Young People Do Menial Labor. So I have a really strong reaction to that, that, uh, that there should be anyone who should be just automatically above and beyond menial labor, right? So, I mean, how do you just operate in daily life without doing some menial labor unless you have uh, s servants, right? So doing some work uh, seems to me like a good thing. And putting other people's needs ahead of your own for, say, 40 hours a week plus, I think that's a, a good thing. But I agree with him that hard work does not in and of itself improve character. I say that because I don't believe anything improves moral character because I don't believe that we have uh, moral character because we're just different in different situations. So when we talk about someone improving his character, right, we're really talking about someone who has chosen to restrict himself to situations where he's more likely to behave in a decent fashion. So when people get older, they tend to restrict themselves more and more and more. They participate in fewer different situations in life, and they tend to restrict themselves to situations where they behave more effectively. So we, there are situations out there where any of us will lie, any of us will dissemble, any of us will be cowardly, any of us will you know, behave in a disgusting manner if it was if it was publicized we'd feel ashamed so I, I don't believe there's anything people can do to 
build moral character does working the 12 steps improve moral character in that same sense that you learn to restrict yourself to situations where you behave more soberly so a lot of getting sober is simply learning to you know restrict yourself from the sort of activities that would get you into a great deal of trouble so here's this essay for a talented and spirited young man doing menial labor for pitiful wages under idiot supervisors not only fails to build character it can destroy it so i agree that there isn't an automatic character building thing going on in in any type of situation also i don't believe that being a chronic under owner which was what was just described is a good thing right if you are under earning that is a debilitating compulsion you can call it an addiction it puts your life at risk right so doing menial labor for pitiful wages right that's not a good thing right uh, under idiot supervisors all right if you're an under earner you're gonna have to deal with a lot more idiots in life or you're just going to be incredibly isolated because people who aren't under earners are not going to want to associate with you the worst thing about being a chronic under earner is that you're only going to get to hang out with other under earners right your, your whole social world is going to be severely restricted so it's a serious thing it can kill you man does not exist to labor for the sake of laboring i'm not sure uh there is a, a payoff for doing painful things right you get a sense of identity out of it you get a sense of purpose out of it you get a sense of meaning out of it you can get a sense of connection with other people so if you're engaged in menial behavior with people who you like that should be a positive experience now i got fired from like the first four jobs i ever held so i started working for other people about age 11 and then it was the summer of 1982 when i was 16 it was the first time i held a job for a few months and i didn't get fired and i worked as a summer camp counselor it was also the first job that i enjoyed i really liked that job i was working with like the you know, sixth seventh eighth grade uh, kids i think at pacific union college as uh, summer i fell in love it was it was a great summer i enjoyed the job i only got paid like 400 dollars for the whole summer of work but it was the first time I worked a job that I, I really enjoyed. Then after high school, I went back to Australia and I got a job cleaning and taking care of the gardens at the Boyne Island Shopping Center. And I was making something like 20 plus dollars an hour, US dollars, the equivalent, and working about 55 hours a week. So I was earning great money and I could have the radio on, like my Sony, Sony Walkman on the whole time. So I listened to the news I listened to music and I was my own boss so I'd hang out I'd have my own shed so I'd take a break every two hours read the the Australian which is the the one national newspaper in Australia and I'd listen to the cricket so it was a really good experience I'd probably read for a couple hours a day on that job so I, I was well paid so wages are determined by immigration levels if the United States did not allow in any immigration menial labor jobs would pay three times as much as I do now. Bernard says, the one office I work at, 100 people regularly leave their cup at the counter and nobody will empty the dishwasher. Whenever I'm in that office, I empty the dishwasher one or two times a day. Yeah, that's, uh, that's disgusting. Like any behavior that you engage in that has a negative effect on, on other people, right? That's, that's bad. And people should, should grow up. 
like we, we need to take into account you know what will be the effect of my behavior on others and that imposes burdens on others okay here's the essay the modern liberal bureaucratic corporate state with its hatred of excellence, beauty, and strength, actively seeks to destroy the natural hierarchy of labor and laborers. I think the very opposite is true. Our modern liberal bureaucratic corporate state, all right, has doubled lifespans over the past 80 years. It has provided us with incredible layers of levels of affluence, has provided health care, it cleans the streets, it uh, has sewers, it's uh, provided civilization. So if you're unhappy with our current you know, liberal bureaucratized state, where is life better, right? You can't have first world government without considerable layers of, of bureaucracy. So if you think like living in America is some kind of hellhole, then <laughs> like where is it better? That's my main question. Like where is it so much better than this? Digging ditches won't automatically make you a good person. Nothing will automatically make you a good person because nobody is a good person. People are good in certain situations. If they primarily restrict themselves to situations where they'll behave good, all right, then you can effectively call them a good person. But uh, th that's, yeah, that's obvious, right? Digging ditches isn't going to make you a good person. He's the first president to be indicted. On Tuesday, he'll be hauled in, fingerprinted, and have his mugshot taken. Why is this happening? Well, Trump does have a unique way of making people lose their minds. Donald J. Trump is now president of the United States. But, perhaps more importantly, Trump is the first president to take on permanent Washington. In 2017, Donald Trump dropped on D.C. like a nuclear bomb. A president was finally challenging the bureaucrats who pulled the levers of our government. Permanent Washington then hit Trump with everything they had. Investigations, impeachments, and leaks to the useful idiots in the press who cosplay like they speak truth to power, but instead carry the water for the powerful. 2020 comes around and they hide Hunter Biden's laptop right before an election only pulling back the curtain after Joe Biden slips into the White House. Now Trump's back on the campaign trail, promising, in fact, to end the Ukraine war within 24 hours. Nope, says permanent Washington. So a district attorney in New York that almost no one has heard of cobbles together a Frankenstein prosecution to take down his party's biggest political enemy. The two star witnesses, a disbarred lawyer and a porn actress, both with a lot to gain. Stormy Daniels is getting rich off Trump's indictment. In fact, she's selling merchandise like T-shirts, posters, and sex toys. Use promo code STORMY for 50% off. The only person with less credibility than Stormy is the district attorney, Alvin Bragg. His number one cam campaign issue was arresting Trump. A lot of people are wondering, uh, whoever has this job, are they going to convict Donald Trump? Look, that 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 is uh, the number one issue. I'm the candidate in the race who has the experience with with Donald Trump. I was the chief deputy in the attorney general's office. We sued the Trump administration over a hundred times. And What's, you believe it should happen? I I, I I believe we have to hold them accountable. It's the number one issue: not arresting murderers, 
not stopping subway attacks. Get Trump. And now Bragg has delivered on his promise. He'll not be in the history books. All Bragg had to do was destroy everything that separates us from a third world country. But the media says this case is rock solid. No one is above the law. A sign that even someone who was once the most powerful person on the planet is not above the law. No one is above the law. No one should be above the law. But that no one is above the law. How do they do that? One hive mind. A misdemeanor that is well past its statute of limitations. In fact, what the case may be is that Alvin Bragg is beyond the law. And okay, we'll keep an eye on the news, but I want to get back to this essay in American Greatness. Right. Digging ditches won't automatically make you a good person. Right. Nothing will automatically make you a good person. But uh, holding a 40-hour-a-week job does significantly decrease the chances that you will be a highly destructive person. Right. If you do legal work 40 hours a week, you'll be tired from it. You'll be less likely to go out and rape and rampage and destroy society. And for 40 hours a week, you'll have to make someone else's desires and needs like more prominent to you than your own or you maybe have to hold down the job so i think that so i would say on average people who hold down work are better people more more sociable you know more pro-social than people who don't for the man who has the soul of a warrior being a day laborer can be soul killing okay i just find that pretentious so warriors don't have to engage in menial work Now, if you have the soul of a, a warrior or you, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got uh, tremendous ambitions for myself, all right? I've often felt, oh, you know, why am I doing this menial work? Why am I doing this, you know, sheer drudgery? I, I'm so talented. You know, why the hell am I working for such low wages? But uh, those are very painful questions about me and how I hadn't, you know, put together my life and you know, I'd gotten out of touch with reality. But uh, here's, a good, here's a good selection, though, on how, how the left is, is celebrating You're this spilling conviction. spilling your blood. I am not usually here on a Thursday night, but, you know, things happen. Deep breath, everybody. The J in Donald J. Trump now stands for jail. That's <laughs> it's historic and it's funny. It's very, very funny. Stormy Daniel was like, oh, so this is what it feels like to be satisfied. Today, I am feeling a little extra American. I didn't know it would feel this good. I called it. Did you? We feel good. It really is a celebration of the law. I have such a little juicy nugget. The judge that, that uh, presided over that case where the Trump family was found guilty yeah. is the same judge presiding over Donald Trump's 30 counts. Oh. Major legal. I mean, it that smile tells you all you need to know. This isn't about the law. It's about those people and their glee. Former FBI director James Comey as well. Very happy. Why? Okay. Keep an eye on the news, but uh, let's get back to talking about the man who has the soul of a warrior, right? One, one thing about work is that it will puncture your delusion. So if you're so convinced that you're a special snowflake, all right, showing up to work particularly if it's a menial, low-paying job, uh, is, is very likely to puncture your delusions. You see this with journalists, right? They can 
no longer make a living in journalism, so they have to do things like sell shoes. And they find it so demeaning. <laughs> it's so hard for them. They feel so crushed by having to do a, a regular job. So, yeah, you encounter reality, but the most painful part of reality that you confront if you're indeed an under-owner is yourself, right? So this guy wants to put all the blame on society and stupid bosses, but the blame should go primarily to him, right? When, when you're an under-owner and you're consistently in menial, low-paying, abusive situations, the one common denominator in all these different abusive, low-paying situations that you put yourself in is you, right? And you have a problem. You're an under-owner. You're a low achiever. You're afraid of normal levels of human connection. Right? And to come out of under-owning, you have to allow your soul essentially to come out of hiring. Same is true for the man with the nature of a craftsman forced to do repetitive rote tasks. So this just is, seems too precious to me for the highest and best human types work might not even be tangible at all for plenty of american parents especially the boom of variety this distinction doesn't register kids these days just don't understand the value of a dollar they aren't willing to work hard they don't respect the grind needed to succeed and he says i'm aware of these arguments i've been surrounded by conservatives issuing these proclamations my entire life they do contain a grain of truth. No doubt many young people are socialists. Many of them do have contempt for those who work hard, would like nothing better than to appropriate, expropriate their property. But far more young Americans, myself included, feel utterly disillusioned and cynical about the nature of modern work for other reasons, rightfully so. No, this is key. This is a key sentence. All right. If he feels utterly disillusioned and utterly cynical in the United States of America, which has more prosperity and more opportunity than almost any nation on earth, then that's all about him, right? <laughs> I mean, if you find America in 2023 or in 2007 or 1981 like a hellhole, that's all about you, right? Wh where do you think things are so much better? But Ad says, I've castrated hogs. Every job I've tried is a step up from, from that. But uh, whatever job you try, you know, whatever social group you join, in the end, you're always going to you know, come back and uh, confront yourself. All right. So that's that's the, the most painful thing, I think, about work is that it forces people to confront themselves. Day. You see, Bragg has finished what Comey started. Two very different cases, but the same goal. Take down the biggest threat to permanent Washington. Let's turn now to Brett Tolman. He's a former U.S. attorney and executive director of right on crime. Brett, great to see you today. As you Good look you at well. what's happened here with Donald Trump, tell me what you expect to happen next. We've talked a lot about this being a two-tier justice system, but now Donald Trump will avail himself of the justice system in Manhattan, in New York. What will happen next, Brett? Will there be motions on the Trump camp, on the Trump attorney's side? What should we watch after Tuesday? What you're going to see right off the bat, Will, is a very serious defense by Donald Trump and his attorneys. There's no joking around right now. The conviction rate across this country is over 90% once you've been charged. So they have to take it incredibly seriously. Notwithstanding that, there's a motion and several motions that are going to be filed immediately. I predict that they're... His sound quality is terrible, so I'm going to cut away 
there's no way that this case goes to trial in the next 18 months, right? There's absolutely no chance that this case goes to trial in the next 18 months. So we're talking about years and years down the line before the case ever goes to, to trial. So that's going to give us lots of time to talk about the nature of work. So yeah, if you are utterly disillusioned and cynical about work in the United States of America, there's something wrong, wrong with you because there are just so many opportunities for prosperity here. And the author says, I was not lazy. I had perfect grades in high school. I had perfect AP test results. All right. I was an Eagle Scout, a school tutor. I was an active member of my church. In college, I worked an unpaid internship for my local congressman. I did groundskeeping after football games. I did telemarketing fundraising during college. I spent 20 hours a week, 28 hours a week calling in the evenings while doing schoolwork during the day. I worked every summer. So yeah, this guy definitely is not lazy. But I remember this is a conversation I had with my boss at uh, K High K Hill News. So this is a radio station in Auburn, California, above Sacramento. We broadcast uh, around the Sacramento area. And I was the news anchor on the weekends, news reporter during the week. And I was telling him about, uh, I was taking like 18 units at college and I was working, you know, like 30 hours a week in, in landscaping and putting in 14 hours a week at the, 18 hours a week at the radio station. And when I was telling him about all the hours I was putting into my various endeavors, he said, yeah, but are they quality hours, right? So you can, you can keep yourself endlessly busy. And some people how they deal with anxiety is just to keep themselves really busy often with really menial tasks so this guy worked hard but it does not sound like he worked smart your boss only cares about grades when you apply for a job out of school says Bernard well I, I think that would depend on time and place I think there's a lot to be said for personal chemistry whether people just like you so i've had job interviews and just immediately connected with the boss and just you know gotten hired that we just we just uh you know hit it off and then the main concern is going to be can you can you do the job all right so back to this essay summer out of high school i worked as a store clerk for a summer camp selling candy bars and he had one day off a week. This was my worst paying job. I spent the whole summer living surrounded by natural beauty, unable to explore much of any of it. And he was paid only minimum wage. So this was a bad choice on his part. Now, America has made menial jobs so low paying because America imports so many immigrants. All right. If we didn't have massive immigration, this job would have paid much more. He would have had more time off and better working conditions. Next summer, I worked nights cleaning gigantic industrial solar panel fields in the Central Valley of California from 6 p.m. until 2 a.m. He did this hellish job for $10 an hour. Yeah, that sounds horrible. That does sound horrible. Summer after my sophomore year, I got a job at a document shredding firm and I could listen to books on tape. Then he went to office at candidate school and... None of this compares to the summer after my senior year. My training company for the uh, basic school for the Marine Corps didn't pick up until October. That gave me four straight unencumbered months to do with as I pleased. I could have learned a language. I could have studied military strategy or physical training. I could have continued my liberal education through self-study, but I had embraced the hard work builds character mindset. And so he got a job as a groundskeeper for an 
upscale retirement center he spent a golden summer in the flower of my youth mowing lawns and picking up trash for wealthy boomers i regret every second of it what an utter waste i did not need the money so if you did not need the money then yeah working every you know spare moment or working when you don't need to right maybe ill-advised right there's there's nothing wrong with uh you know spending your time reading books all right i certainly maximized my time uh, reading books i didn't need something to keep me busy i've always had an active intellectual life and a strong sense of purpose i should have followed my natural inclination and pursued the kind of work fitting for my talents yeah so you seem to lack common sense that's what i'm picking up and what's never stated explicitly but this guy lacked friends right if you have friendships they will guide you and connect you to much better jobs. I remember often I was working menial, you know, near minimum wage jobs. And I look around at people who weren't as, you know, intel intelligent as I was. And they were earning three, four times as much as I was. But they were more socially skilled. They had more friends. They had a you know, wider social circle and people who liked them and set them up. So the great job that I had at the Boynton Island Shopping Center, that was set up for me by a, a friend of the family. So most great things in life right they, they come to you from friends so we've got uh, trans activists here storming this is good i want to see this a uh, little bit more storming storming the capital whimsical and childlike no reports on whether or not the mirror was also running a feature profile on hitler's painting career in a separate section of the newspaper cbs allegedly banning their staff from even saying the word transgender for this mass shooting. The entire media flipping the script to have to fit this narrative. Meanwhile, a group of trans activists in Kentucky stormed a Capitol building as well, not just Tennessee, but Kentucky. And yes, this time there was even a trans shaman. Oh, a shaman, that was it, that's the word. It was insurrection. The word I was looking for earlier. Okay, so yeah, if you have friends, particularly if you have friends with common sense, they'll help you secure, you know, much better jobs, and they'll just make everything go better in life. Everything goes better in life with friends and family if you get along with your family and uh, relatives. If you get along with with your relatives. Now, instead of cultivating my mind by focusing on the higher and more critical tasks of war and peace, I spent my days thinking about how does one patch a broken sprinkler line? What is the easiest way to kill gophers? What is the most efficient way to use a lawn blower to move grass clippings from the sidewalk back into the yard? Uh, these are terrible things to think about. Right? You, can, you might pick up some, some common sense. Sometimes if there was a lull in my day, I would walk over to the edge of the retirement community and look out at the mighty Sierra Nevadas rising in the east. I dreamed of scaling the peaks, seeing the vistas stretch out before me. I could have spent my whole summer among the ancient forests and crystal clear lakes of the high mountain meadows if I'd really wanted. I dream of them still. So I spent my years, what, uh, 84 to 88, you know, working 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week. I overdid it. Uh, it it uh, probably played played a role in my collapse into chronic fatigue syndrome because I didn't have the strength because I wasn't eating meat. Right? If only I had my my beef organ capsules, like I, I wouldn't have wouldn't have collapsed. But yeah, you can overdo anything, you know, including uh, 
work, including uh, menial work. So as a boy, these mountains taught me real character. When I was 12, my father took me to our namesake mountain, Mount Lippincott. Climbing that mountain with my father was far more memorable and meaningful to me than any summer I spent riding out a minimum wage paycheck. Yeah, so you want to maximize your time doing things that are filled with meaning and purpose. That's true. But uh, first of all, you have to pay the bills. Once you've paid the bills, you've put away you know, a prudent reserve, you're providing for your retirement, then yeah, maximize meaningful interactions. But climbing mountains is not going to teach you real character, right? Nothing is going to teach you real character because whatever skills you learn in cleaning a mountain, climbing a mountain is not necessarily going to translate to completely different situations, right? He climbed a mountain with his father, right? Is that going to help him to be a faithful husband to his wife? Is that going to help him to be a good father to his children? Is that going to help him uh, avoid cheating on his taxes, is that going to make him uh, more, more considerate when some stranger falls down in front of him? No. But uh, back to the essay. The hearts of some men call them to the ascent. They long to conquer, to master space. They long to master themselves. That longing, pre-rational, burning, impotent, explains the success of vitality of Western civilization. Some men yearn for nothing but a life in a heart tilling the fields and aging with the seasons. But others look out on the vast ocean and wonder what lies beyond. They yearn for more. Yeah, so I identify with this in that some people are better cut out for menial labor than other people, right? For, for some people, uh, just, you know, plugging something in on an assembly line is just drives them crazy. That's why for certain cop positions, they, they only want to uh, hire people. Oh, I like uh, Robbie Starbuck. So maybe we'll see what Robbie Starbuck has to say here. But yeah, for, for certain people, you know, working on an assembly line will be absolutely intolerable. So you need to find a situation in life where you're going to thrive, right? It's all about finding a situation. Not surprised at all because the Democratic Party has become an encapsulation of what you just saw from Joe Biden, his White House, and their media puppets this week. They are treating this shooter, this mass murderer, as a victim. And it can't be forgotten that it is a trans mass murderer, but they want to go and whitewash that by making everything about how trans people are basically the soul of the nation. I'm sorry, but you know what? That says a lot about the soul of our nation. It is sick. And you know what? That's not the soul of my nation. That's not the soul of the nation I know. That's the soul of maybe the one Joe Biden believes in. But the soul of the nation that I believe in is those three little kids, those nine-year-olds who were gunned down by a trans mass murderer. It's those three adults who lost their lives because they're Christian. That's the soul of the nation I believe in. And for what what they've chosen to do this week to override the, the, the loss of life and to try to replace it with messages as if the trans community is the one being victimized, it's just disgusting to anybody in regular America. And beyond that, you know, the videos you played earlier from the legislature, mm -hmm. when they tried to storm the Capitol in Tennessee, those people are actually inside. They were in the well. Those are legislators here. Justin Pearson, Justin, uh, there's two Justins, and then there's Gloria Johnson. These people, they need to be expelled from the legislature and that is going to be happening I believe here in the next week because they are incensed that legislature members were out there coordinating with these activists these activists who again by the way had those seven fingers up because they consider the trans mass murderer a victim so, so to be clear amongst that crowd 
shoving their way through police barricades onto the well of a legislature. You're telling me weren't just radical activists, but legislators in those states looking to disrupt their own proceedings? Exactly, yes. You've got two Justins or two young men. In fact, one of them, um, he was actually a radical far left organizer and activist before he was elected in the most recent election. And that Justin, he was arrested for assault even. But Democrats here decided to elect him in his uh, small district here in Nashville. And that member was the guy holding the megaphone you see in there. And the other one's holding his cute little sign. They were the ones whipping up the crowd. And they need to pay a political price yeah. for that because you don't belong in the general assembly if you're going to be whipping that type of thing up and putting lives in danger. Because there's people who work in, in the Capitol of all political stripes. They're good people. They don't deserve to be put in danger because you've got some sort of political gripe. Re really quickly, right? what do you make of the hypocrisy? I mean, the, the images, first of all, so January 6th, Insurrection Day. Now we look at this, and it basically looks like a mirror image when it comes to this movement right here on the, on the floor of a legislature. On top of that, let's just focus on CBS News. I know very well the rules whenever the shooter in some type of horrific incident is white, lead with the race and lead with the manifesto. If it doesn't meet that, then it is hide the race or hide the motivation. What do I do? What is the meaning of the hypocrisy? The Democratic Party, they are the kings and queens of hypocrisy and projection. That is who they are now. It's the reason why you see no moderate Democrats speaking out about this and saying, hey, hold up a second. Why are we putting out messages about trans people being the victims instead of these six innocent Christians who were gunned down for their beliefs? That's why they're not there, because they know they will be pushed out of their party if they speak out about this. And they say, you know what, we've got to stop the hypocrisy and we've got to acknowledge reality. And you end up with activist legislators like we see here, and you're seeing it all over the country. You see it with this Alvin Bragg in New York who's charging President Trump. They are turning right. into a radical party that are not a real alternative for I the think, American people. I think, Robbie, what we have to come to grips with is the hypocrisy is not a bug, it's a feature. It's not a quest to live up to... Okay, back to does uh, hard work build character essay here in American Greatness. As I pass from youth into middle age, I'm struck by how much of my life thus far has been spent in pointless and degrading work. All right, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be struck by his own shortcomings. He doesn't want to think about to what extent am I responsible for my own misery. He wants to externalize all his problems. I will never get those hours back. They've been spent and not well. I was advised to simply learn to play the game. But what if the game is stupid? What if I don't want to play? Okay, so there is reality. All right. And if you are not willing to fit yourself to reality, like good luck to you. This guy does not want to fit himself to reality. Doesn't Most of all, he doesn't want to deal with the reality of his own poor choices. And what's behind all this is a guy with this overly inflated sense of his own greatness who the, the, the subtext, what's, what's completely missing from this, how is this guy so disconnected from other people, from his family, from uh, wise elders, that they, you know, that they couldn't give him better advice and help procure him more meaningful work? Right? What is it about this guy that uh, other people just don't like very much? Because if he was likable, right, he wouldn't have to work the, these crappy jobs. Right, he's in these repeatedly abusive, crappy, demoralizing situations because apparently people don't like him. And that's a very painful thing to acknowledge. I've had to wrestle with that myself many times in my life. It's like, wow, people just really do not like me. And that's not irrational. 
right? They they don't like me for rational reasons. There are things that I am doing that are getting on people's nerves. I am diminishing their quality of life, and they you know, don't like me, and they're going to hurt me. And, okay, maybe we, we need to honor more trans swimmers. That's what I say. That'll make everything better. Double A Division One Championship. I'm, I'm very humbled and, and honored to to hold that title. Um, and I can only hope that I'm able to give other trans people the inspiration and motivation I was given. Speaking of reading the room, ESPN clearly doesn't know how to read the room. As this week, the network used Women's History Month to honor transgender swimmer Leah Thomas. The move is a slap in the face to all of the college women who lost to the male-born Thomas. Okay, that's a good point there by the Fox News host. But uh, here we go. What if you have to learn to play the game? What if the game is stupid? Okay, so you may think reality is stupid, but reality is always going to win, right? You can take your religious faith and you can cling to your religious faith, but if your religious faith is out of touch with reality, reality is going to win. You can have these high, transcendent, lofty ideals, but if they clash with reality, in that contest, reality is going to win. You may esteem yourself immeasurably, but if that causes you to clash with reality, reality is going to win. Oh man, so much good stuff on this show. I, I want to, I want to see this. Okay, or so we thought. But when Gaines confronted one anthropology professor, the teacher's response was laughable. I actually have a question for you. You being an anthropologist, which anthropology is the study of human civilization, oh, human. human. So if you were to dig up a human two humans, and a hundred years from now, both man and woman, could you tell the difference? Strictly off of bones. No, because it's a migraine. <laughs> no, he said. I don't know who gave that professor his PhD. Wow. <laughs> That's a very good, very good question. All right, back to the article. A life of hard toil is a peasant's life. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of someone I know, all right? His wife has cancer. Uh, medication, medical expenses are astronomical. This guy works a 40-hour-a-week job where he earns close to six figures, and then he spends most of his spare time going around uh, looking in trash for items that he can then uh, recycle and sell. So he, he drives around. He's got a 40-hour-a-week you know, solid-paying job, and he goes around like digging into trash cans looking for items that he can recycle to make extra money for his wife's you know medical expenses so that's incredibly menial work he, he he's doing it you know to keep his wife alive he's doing it for his family you know all sorts of men work you know menial jobs uh people who work regular jobs and then drive for uber on the side to support their families so a life of hard toil is a peasant's life. You know what also tends to result in a frequently in a life of hard toil? If you have family, if you have obligations, if you're connected to other people, if you care about your kids, if you care about your spouse, 
you will do anything to protect your family, and that will frequently involve hard toil. For the kind of human being who would incline towards wicked and dissolute degradation, then doing manual labor does build character. For the more noble type of man, for one who seeks glory and wisdom, such hard labor represents a decline. Yeah, but the hard labor represents that there's something misfiring in you, that you're unable to be connected with other people who would then be able to steer you, guide you, and promote you into work that you would find uh, more pleasing. Others might criticizing, criticize me for not doing more to do work in line with my supposed talents. If I'm so smart, why didn't I find better summer employers? I throw the question back in the critic's face. Why didn't these better employers come looking for me? Because it's not reality. <laughs> All right? So reality is, generally speaking, people have to go out there and find work. Right? Only very few people have employers beating down their door. So this guy's real rage is with reality, with his own failings in life, his own abilities to connect with other people. Why is the burden on talented 18-year-olds to properly wargame every minute of their lives? No. If you have friends and family, then you will tend to go in more productive directions. Right? No one's asking anyone to wargame every minute of their life. Why is the burden not on our educational economic institutions to properly cultivate those who are bright but inexperienced? Right? This guy is so socially maladjusted. Right? He thinks that uh, if... if Society changed. If reality was just different, if our educational and economic institutions were reconfigured, he would be so much happier. This guy is the equivalent of all those, you know, angry black women who, you know, write up ads about, you know, when the revolution comes, they'll be considered more attractive than they are right now. This guy is the equivalent of, you know, all those angry black women complaining about the supposed uh, plethora of white people wanting to touch their hair. Why do so many parents fiercely insist that their children work even at demeaning jobs with pitiful pay? Uh, because in the end, you need to be able to support yourself and uh, a pitiful job with low pay, unless you're a total loser, is going to be a very temporary situation. So this guy must just be totally failing at relationships with other people. Right? If you're working pitiful job after pitiful job, that's on you if you're in the United States of America, if you're in a land with tremendous freedom and opportunity, if you're in pitiful situation after pitiful situation, what's the common denominator to all these pitiful situations? I mean, I should introduce this guy to Otto Paul and uh, Godwood Podcast, and uh, they could have a, have a pity party together. American teenagers don't need more work experience. Uh, maybe um, there is negative work experience, there's positive work experience, but uh, it's not primarily on our you know, educational institutions to provide you know, young people with uplifting work experiences. That's primarily on you and your connections with your family and friends. I did pull myself up by my bootstraps. I didn't take out a single loan for college. I paid in cash instead. Look, when I was 18, it never occurred to me that once I turned 18 that my family would pay for anything. So I know in certain circles it's taken for granted that their family will pay for their university education. That never even occurred to me. It wasn't even in the realm of possibility. I never thought that I would you know, look to my family to pay my way through college. I started 
working and saving money at age 11. Uh, by you know age 19, I'd probably had $25,000 saved. Uh, I plan to work my way through college. Now, I respect, you know, I recognize different cultures do things differently. So I noticed that Asian parents invest more in their children, generally speaking, than white parents invest in their children. But with that tremendous investment comes tremendous expectations. The Asian kids that I knew at UCLA, they would go home on the weekends to work in their parents' donut shops and things like that. So I noticed that Jewish parents, by and large, tend to invest far more in their children than white parents. But with that higher investment comes higher expectations and reduced levels of freedom. So I grew up in Anglo-Saxon homes. They don't invest as much, generally speaking, in their kids as Asian and Jewish kids. But on the other hand, they allow their children far more, um, far more freedom. I had $25,000 by age 19. So I earned over, I saved over $20,000 during my year working in Australia after high school. So I think I got my savings up around $50,000 before I got sick and pretty much lost lost it all. I've forgotten the, the white, oh yeah. So yeah, some cultures invest more, right? But the great thing about Anglo-Saxons is that the one group, to the best of my ability, who don't live through their kids. So they, they may not invest as much in their kids as Asian and, and Jewish parents, but they allow the kids much more freedom. And so when I was in school, I would frequently do hours and hours of you know extra work that didn't do anything for my grades. It was just a topic that I was interested in. And I noticed in the in my schooling, the kids who would like really you know go the second mile and just spend hours pursuing various projects without respect for their grades, these were almost always white kids, right? The, the Asian kids I noticed were just primarily focused on getting great grades, but uh, many of the white kids, you know, pursued their own interests. They weren't nearly as concerned about their grades as the Asian kids. So different cultures, right? Different gifts, different uh, child rearing practices, you know, very happy to grow up in, you know, a culture that Anglo-Saxon culture that, you know, afforded me just so much freedom. Wow, we've got these uh, hit hit ads here on uh, Ron DeSantis. I just saw Ron DeSantis. Think again. In Congress, DeSantis voted three separate times to cut Social Security. That's right, three times over three years. Worse, DeSantis voted to cut Medicare two times. DeSantis even voted to raise the retirement age to 70. The more you learn about DeSantis, the more you see he doesn't share our values. He's just not ready to be president. Make America Great Again, Inc. is responsible for the content of this advertising. Wow. So Donald Trump's PAC is already releasing releasing ads going after Ron DeSantis. That's interesting. All right, that's on Fox. America is filled with millions of people doing make-work jobs for ridiculous sums of money. Colleges are no exception. Somehow our institutions find millions to pour into administrator salaries. Young people need to grind out lousy jobs and unpaid internships just to get within hailing distance of a decent middle class life. No, you need to get along with other people. You need to allow your soul to come out of hiding. And if you allow your soul to come out of hiding, to be positively visible in the world and connect with other people and develop good relations with your family, extended family, friends, community, right? great things happen to you. 
that I was just uh, in the elevator and I just had a you know a 20 second interaction with someone who's incredibly successful and but we connected in about 20 seconds exchanged email uh, you know I know him he knows me now 20 seconds I was in an elevator you know, I'm a friendly outgoing guy said hey da 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 he said ah da 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 and I said ah da 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 and he said yeah you should come see like great things happen when you're positively visible when you're you know you've got a good attitude on life and when you know human connection is something that you want rather than something that you flee from our society encourages the weak the old and the mediocre to sink their fangs into the young strong and excellent to drain them of their vital energy all right this is just delusional right the guy doesn't want to come to terms with his own shortcomings you know cause him to lead a very painful life everything goes better when you have friends i remember summer of uh, 1986 i'd had mono for about three months so i was pretty weak i got a job working construction four dollars an hour and for the first couple of weeks to just kind of weed people out all right all i would do was uh you know swing a pick and a shovel and it was in 100 degree sacramento heat and i was absolutely exhausted and you know i hated the job but then on the fourth day of the job we went to the home of this real estate magnate uh, doug hanslick and he noticed me like he didn't just you know throw a pick and a shovel at me and say go dig that ditch she said oh where are you from it sounds like you're from australia oh my daughter wants to go to australia you must meet my daughter so he made me feel like a man she made me feel like a human being i just loved doug hanslick i loved his family and that completely transformed my whole entire attitude to landscaping work so having this positive experience with this family with the wonderful people I met in the family, just just transform my my attitude to to my job. And so I loved working for this family. I loved being around this family, and it, it just transformed my my attitude towards my overall job. I became a, a foreman, a supervisor for this landscaping company. I even dropped out of school the next semester at Sierra Community College. I just took uh, six units instead of my, my scheduled 15 or 18. I, I gave up editing the my college newspaper because I just fell in love with landscaping work because something about being around this family just fed my soul. I guess I, I have certain yearnings for human connection and certain yearnings for you know being part of a, a family. And you know this family sort of adopted me and it just fed my soul and you can have your soul fed at work now obviously my extreme reaction to this family and, and you know how how good it made me feel was based on you know shortcomings in, in my own life and so when you're misfiring you know when you become so needy for human connection that you you, know, you give up editing the college newspaper giving up you know going to going to college to just you know work a miserable sacramento winter in, in landscaping all right i i you know i didn't make that mistake again i was back full-time at college the, the next semester but uh you can meet you know extraordinary people in in the workplace and if you're only meeting losers that that reflects something about you right there's something wrong with you and how you're wired it's not your fault you didn't ask to be a loser you didn't ask to be antisocial. you didn't ask to be someone who hides in the cave you know, keeps their talents under a under a bushel to use a biblical phrase right you don't have to blame yourself for being you know such a compulsive antisocial, disconnected hiding in the cave loser but it helps to recognize it and 
once you accept that reality, you can start to get help. Western civilization finds itself caught in this trap. One wonders if there is anything left in our declining order. So I notice all the people who think that uh, Western civilization is declining, that America is declining, that we're living in a hellscape, they're, they're just talking about th themselves and their own shortcomings. All right. You know, Western civilization is still the dominant civilization on Earth. And America is still the dominant country on Earth. And it's still a place with tremendous opportunity. Okay, you're probably wondering, what are some instantly calming techniques for anxiety? Material of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to three instantly calming CBT techniques for anxiety. Now, Marcus Aurelius said, very little is needed to make a happy life. It is all within yourself, in your way of thinking. Now, I'm a huge admirer of Aurelius and loved his reflections, which I read many years ago. But in the interest of thinking for myself, I open with the, uh, this quote from the famous Stoic philosopher and Roman emperor, because in my humble opinion, it's just plain wrong, or at the very least, vastly incomplete. So let me explain. People thrive in environments that help them meet their innate emotional and physical needs. So as human beings, we have these innate needs and we have an instinctual desire to fulfill them. And when we don't fulfill them, we unavoidably suffer. And I think it's reassuring to let clients know sometimes that their happiness isn't just about what they do inside their own minds. Okay, it's also to do with the extent to which their environment helps them meet their needs. Um, it's also about taking action to identify and meet their needs. So people who meet their needs in a balanced way are less likely to suffer anxiety. Just as thirst is a signal that you're not meeting your need for hydration, anxiety is a signal that you're not meeting your needs in some way. Now, this isn't to say that what we do in our minds has no relevance to our happiness or lack thereof. Of course it does. But the way we feel is not just a response to the way things really are out there in the world. It's also about how we make sense of what's happening to us. Okay. Now, in case you thought I was um, done ranting, I have one other issue with cognitive behavioral therapy that I need to air before I give you three easy to apply CBT techniques for treating anxiety that I've found over the years incredibly useful when working with anxious clients. So let's look at this shaky theory first of changing thoughts to change feelings. Now, strong emotion arises not after thoughts, not because of thoughts, but before them. And if you see reference one, you'll, you'll uh, know what I mean. So it's often easier and more powerful to change feelings than it is to ch change the thoughts. Okay. Again, this basic neuroscience contradicts classical CBT. Emotions are a fundamental human characteristic, essential for immediate physical survival. They're more powerful than thoughts, occurring much more quickly than cognition, and sometimes with no associated thoughts at all. Clinical hypnosis is the best way to change feelings directly. See reference two. And a change in our thoughts is a natural consequence of a change in our emotional responses. So for post-traumatic stress disorder and phobias, for example, it's not faulty thinking that's the problem and the uh, chances of making... Yeah, I like that uh, pushback to cognitive behavioral therapy. Many good things about cognitive behavioral therapy, but like everything, it has its limits. Sometimes there are better techniques than CBT. So I've been learning a lot about anxiety because... Intermittently, I tend to suffer from anxiety. All right. Uh, ethnic diversity and social trust, a narrative and meta-analytical review. So this is a paper in the 2020 Annual Review of Political Science. 
right? There's a meta-analysis of 87 studies about diversity and social trust. Every single one of the 87 studies shows that ethnic diversity reduces social trust. Whoa, 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 I never expected that. Does ethnic diversity erode social trust? Yes, overwhelmingly. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. So just more exposure to people of different ethnic backgrounds erodes social trust, right? Uh, ethnic diversity leads to social isolation. People hunker down. Ethnic diversity induces general enemy, so uh, listlessness, right? Ethnic diversity lowers all forms of social trust, including both out-group and in-group trust. People much prefer to interact with people like themselves, right? This is a meta-analysis of all 87 studies on this issue. So Charles Murray wrote a book review for the Claremont Review of Books about a book by political scientist Yasha Monk, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. So can democracies that are ethnically diverse survive? Charles Murray says there's much to admire about this book. It, it's written beautifully. But the book overall feels irrelevant to the situation facing the United States. Like America's diversity problems are incomparable to those facing Western European countries. So the first disparity between America and Western Europe is that whites continue to be an overwhelming majority of the population everywhere in Western Europe. Ten Western European countries have populations over 90% white. The most diverse country in Western Europe is the Netherlands with only 84% whites. Compare that with the United States where whites are only 60% of the population. So large ethnic majorities can unilaterally set the terms of assimilation by minorities. Right? This is, is true the Chinese majority in Singapore as it is of the white majority in Norway. So the countries of Western Europe still have the option to do what the United States did throughout its history till the 1960s, energetically socialize immigrants into the culture of their new country. So it's a lot easier to do that when you have the overwhelming majority of the population. So Theodore Roosevelt put it, an immigrant's naturalization must be predicated upon the person's becoming in every facet an American and nothing but an American. Right, This is an option for Western European countries. It's no longer an option for the United States. Second disparity is the size of the individual ethnic minorities. No one ethnic minority in any Western European nation is large enough to be a political force on its own, except perhaps France's North African Muslim population, which is about 10% of the country. So the United States has two large and politically powerful minorities, Latinos, 19% of the population, Blacks, 12%, and Asians, 6% are emerging as another power. So the biggest problem with this book, Great Experiment, is that it is unserious, right? The author disregards evolutionary psychology. He acknowledges that humans are groupish, right? That's his word. And he knows more than he lets on, but he's too cowardly to say the truth. He uses the phrases, we are wired with regard to groupishness. Right? He acknowledges that this has an evolutionary basis, but he doesn't explain why humans are groupish and why he doesn't propose solutions for groupishness. Right, so one of the less biggest crippling errors for a century now has been to discount the importance of innate and intractable human behavior. 
insisting that all human tendencies are malleable. You just need the right social policies, right? And Steven Pinker wrote a devastating critique of this in his bestseller, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. We have decades worth of subsequent genetic findings that reinforce Steven Pinker's case. Second sin of omission in this book, he ignores the empirical literature on ethnic diversity and social trust. So social trust refers to humans' confidence in the good faith and the goodwill of those around them. This is the kind of confidence that allows neighbors to leave the front door unlocked when leaving home for the afternoon. This encourages people to do good deeds in the expectation that eventually they will be directly or indirectly reciprocated. This enables sellers to extend credit to buyers. So social trust is indispensable to an environment in which communities, capitalist economies, and democracies can flourish. And you see this theme developed by eminent scholars such as Edward Banfield in the 1958 book, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society, Francis Fukuyama's 1995 book, Trust, and Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. So ethnic diversity in a community significantly erodes social trust, not only between different ethnic groups, but also among people within the same ethnic group. Right, this ominous relationship was first documented in 2007 by Robert Putnam in E Pluribus Unum in Scandinavian Political Studies Journal. By 2020, a meta-analysis of the relationship, ethnic diversity and social trust in the annual review of political science could call upon 87 separate studies. All 87 studies found a statistically significant negative correlation between ethnic diversity and social trust. Right, this is an astonishing statistic for sociology and psychology, which is notorious for publishing findings that don't replicate even once. Third sin of omission, ignoring the literature on ethnic differences in social behavior. Right, social behavior refers to the ways people act with respect to social institutions, such as marriage, civic activities, religious activities, places, work, schools, sidewalks, public parks, other people's homes. So if the differences were small, wouldn't matter. And for America's East Asians and South Asians, the differences with whites are small. For Latinos, they vary from small to moderate. For blacks, they usually vary from moderate to large. So just consider one social behavior, marriage. So for adults aged 20 and over, 61% of Asians are married, 54% of whites, 44% of Latinos, 28% of blacks. Right, Huge difference. The marriage rates increase along with education. So do ethnic differences persist for people with high school diplomas, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, professional degrees? Yes. So in the case of blacks and whites, the differences still range from 18 to 24 percentage points. Now it's been known for decades that ethnic differences in crime rates exist. Right? So the black to white ratio for violent crime arrests across America's biggest cities is about 10 to 1 on average. So Monk does discuss this, but he limits himself to lamenting that blacks are incarcerated and killed by police at higher rates than their proportion of the population. Does not mention ethnic differences in crime rates. So a lot of good things here in the Claremont uh, review of books. And I, I saw an interesting article in the New Yorker. It was revisiting the Brock Turner case. Remember the the Brock Turner case? He's the swimmer at Stanford University 
who was uncovered fingering an unconscious Asian woman outside of a fraternity party, turned out that her blood alcohol content was 0.22, which is just astronomical. So she was passed out. People saw him, seized him, called the police, and the judge sentenced him to six months in jail. And the leniency of the sentence ignited widespread fury. So there was a campaign to recall the judge, and it was successful. But the opposition to the campaign drew liberal critics right so one black feminist judge says i'm opposed to this recall because i believe this recall would be terrible for racial justice so overall the people pushing the recall wanted you know this white rapist to spend more time in prison they didn't want non-white rapists to spend time in prison so as a result of this recall studies found that judges began imposing sentences that were roughly 30% longer on average across the board. And who got sentenced? Disproportionately black and Hispanic people. So the liberal mob wanted this white rapist to spend more time in prison. But when it comes to black and Latino rapists, they don't like that. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The defining principle of the American legal system, really of American life, the principle that has kept us free, is equal justice. And the principle is fairly simple. No matter what you look like or who your parents were or what your politics might be, the law treats you exactly the same way as it would any other American. In this country, justice is blind. Now, that's a lofty standard, but because Americans have long believed in fairness and because most of the people in charge of administering that system have behaved in good faith, this country has, for the most part, lived up to its core ideal for 250 years, making it the greatest country in the world. But the populist surge of 2016 changed everything. Permanent Washington suddenly felt more threatened by its own voters, by American voters, than by any foreign adversary. Donald Trump, to them, seemed more dangerous than ISIS. They panicked. And in their panic, our leaders decided to turn the American legal system, as well as the American intel agencies, and if necessary, the U.S. Army, against their political opponents. They felt they had no choice. In doing this, they abandoned the ancient principle of equality under the law, and they replaced it with what is effectively a loyalty oath. Opponents of the regime became enemies of the state. That's a huge change, and you're seeing the results of that change tonight. Just 24 hours after a Manhattan grand jury indicted Joe Biden's rival in the next presidential race, another jury, also in New York, convicted a Republican social media influencer called Douglas Mackey. What did Mackey do wrong? Well, Douglas Mackey's crime was mocking Hillary Clinton voters online. You're seeing on your screen the meme that Mackey posted on Twitter during the 2016 election. In that meme, Mackey suggests it's possible to vote for president by text message because only Hillary voters could be stupid enough to believe something so absurd. But of course, in real life, no one did believe that. Mackey's insult did not alter a single vote in the election, and no one has proved otherwise. The government brought forth not a single victim of this crime. It couldn't. Douglas Mackey was joking. Nobody believed he was a federal election official. And in fact, his social media profile pictured a Donald Trump hat. It was unmistakable. This was mockery. But in the wake of the 2016 election and the rising hysteria of, about Donald Trump, mocking the Democratic Party became a crime. So as a result, tonight, Douglas Mackey faces 10 years in prison.
The case against Doug Mackey is the most shocking attack on freedom of speech in this country in our lifetimes. It's also a useful lesson in who will be allowed to speak going forward. As it turns out, a woman called Christina Wong posted an almost identical meme the same year, back during the 2016 election. But unlike Doug Mackey, Wong voted for Hillary Clinton. Hey, Trump supporters, she wrote, skip poll lines and text in your vote. Same crime. But the Department of Justice under Joe Biden has shown no interest in prosecuting Christina Wong. Do you see how this works? Have you internalized our new partisan legal standards? That would be the point of the exercise. They want you to know the rules. We'll have more on the Doug Mackey case and what it means for you and for America in just a moment. And by the way, Douglas Mackey is not the only Trump supporter who is now going to prison because of how he voted. According to new reporting from Julie Kelly, the FBI's counterterrorism division just arrested a grandmother in the state of Virginia on four misdemeanors this week. What exactly did she do? She entered the Capitol with her elderly mother for a total of 15 minutes on January 6th. She hurt no one. She destroyed nothing. She just stood there. And yet at the very same time during the very same week, none of the transgenderist thugs who invaded the Tennessee State House yesterday have been rounded up by the FBI counterterror division. And of course, they won't be. Joe Biden just honored them with a trans day of visibility. So what we're watching here, unmistakably, is bigger than Donald Trump. But we're going to begin tonight with the latest on his case. And we're doing that because he is, and this is not at all incidental to his prosecution, he is the leading Republican candidate for president. Now, Trump apparently is being charged not with treason or insurrection or collusion or even shoplifting, but with something much smaller, a slew of process crimes relating to a payment he apparently made seven years ago. In no fair system would that be a crime under the law seven years later. But the Soros-funded district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, has stitched together a Frankenstein legal theory to justify this prosecution. Under normal circumstances, it would be impossible because the statute of limitations has passed. And as if all of that were not third world enough, someone leaked the news of Donald Trump's grand jury indictment to the media. Now, that in itself is a crime under the law in New York. In fact, a much bigger crime than those under which Donald Trump is being charged. Will Alvin Bragg prosecute the leaker? Please. It's almost certainly someone in his own office. Nor will Bragg prosecute, as many people have pointed out today, the crimes of Hunter Biden or other Democratic partisans. Those aren't rare or hard to find. Bragg will not prosecute Hillary Clinton, even though she just admitted to violating campaign's finance law by paying for the fake Russian dossier. What's fascinating is that none of this has alerted the watchdogs to government abuse, our media, no, just the opposite. The media are cheerleading our new standards of tribal justice. Watch. The good news is here, it's our legal system in action saying nobody is above the law. Nobody's above the law, not Republicans and not Democrats, not Donald Trump, not anybody. I tend to think that nobody is above the law. No person above the law. We have political leaders who are not above the law. We don't believe that anybody should be above the law. They were all beating the same drum, if you will. No one is above the law. No one is above the law. Today's evidence is that that includes Trump as well. New life has been breathed into that saying, no person is above the law. Let's be completely clear. None of the people you just saw care a thing about justice. Let that word burn in their mouths. No, they are obviously bloodthirsty. 
They would cheer as you were necklaced in the street. No one is above the law, they would scream as you writhed on the ground. They would. But as long as we're still pretending that the old standards of fairness and equal application of the law apply, then whatever happened to Sam Bankman-Fried? Remember him? Largest financial crime in history? To this day, no one has explained or bothered to even try to tell us how Sam Bankman-Fried was able to make his bail. That was set at $250 million. All that has been disclosed to us, the long-suffering public, is that a former dean at Stanford and a Stanford computer scientist put up $500,000 and $200,000 respectively, and his parents put up the value of their home. So that leaves quite a big gap. Where did the rest of the money come from? No one will tell us. No one in the media is asking because no one cared. Sam Bankman-Fried didn't pay off a former mistress. No, he defrauded a million people and ran off with houses in the Bahamas. And yet the system is protecting him because he voted correctly. That's remarkable. But he's not the only criminal that Washington refuses to prosecute. There are so many of them. The people who destroyed the U.S. dollar, for example. The ones who degraded the United States military and turned it into a joke, which it is. The ones who flooded rural America with opioids and killed hundreds of thousands. The people currently selling our oil reserves to China. None of them have ever been prosecuted. In fact, they've all been promoted. We'll have more on them in just a moment. But for now, we'd like to start with Donald Trump, the Republican frontrunner who's been indicted for non-existent crimes in the middle of a presidential race. We have a very specific question about how this is going to affect the race, because, of course, affecting the race is the entire point. Harmeet Dillon has followed all of this closely from the inside. She's the founder of the Dillon Law Group. Harmeet, thanks so much for coming on tonight. So let's start um, with a specific question. Okay, let's uh, go back to some of the best articles I've been reading on the Claremont Review of Books. I, I put down about 30 bucks for a one-year subscription just to read Christopher Cordwell on uh, India's uprising. But uh, a lot of good stuff here. Here's an article on teaching the Holocaust. So the author says that uh, Jewish schools are most likely to place the Holocaust in a historical context of anti-Semitism. And then schools with a Christian emphasis portray the Holocaust as a manifestation of pure evil. Schools without a religious affiliation present uh, the Holocaust as prejudice and the dangers of prejudice. All right, but in almost every case, whether the schools are Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, secular, public, or private, the Germans are cardboard caricatures of evil, and that's out of touch with reality. All right, most of us have a desire to belong to something bigger than ourselves, whether we're participating in a YouTube live stream, cheering at a football game, singing in a choir, line dancing at a wedding reception. All right, we get high. We get a boost from connecting, synchronizing ourselves with other people. We get emotional energy, right? And the Nazis, you know, provided an opportunity for people to connect. They had developed all these activities and organizations that brought people to a stronger, deeper, more intense form of connection with other people, which unleashed a tremendous amount of energy, all right? The, the Nazis did not exist outside of history. They existed inside of history by meeting the needs of the German people in the 1930s. And during the 1930s, Hitler had, you know, 80% plus approval ratings, right? The, the Nazis had all these different rallies, all these different activities, all skillfully crafted to elicit and sustain this kind of transcendental ecstasy that you feel when you're bonded with other people and 
joined with them and doing the same things. So it's popular today to devalue these sort of tribal experiences, right? Instead of group ecstasy, we're supposed to focus on individual fulfillment and self-actualization rather than self-transcendence. But this emphasis on the individual impoverishes and flattens the human experience. Right? To transcend yourself, to sacrifice yourself for others, to love all the world, this can be the pinnacle of a human experience. So George Orwell wrote in March 1940, Nearly all Western thought since the last war, certainly all progressive thought, has assumed tacitly that human beings desire nothing beyond ease, security, and avoidance of pain. In such a view of life, there is no room for patriotism and the military virtues. But the Nazis understood something about human nature that the democracies did not. Right? Hitler knew that human beings did not only want comfort, safety, short working hours, hygiene, birth control, and common sense. They at least intermittently wanted struggle, self-sacrifice, drums, flags, loyalty parades. Right? Socialism and capitalism has said to people, I offer you a good time. Hitler said to people, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And as a result, a whole nation flung itself at his feet. Yeah, pretty insightful commentary there from George Orwell. So you have to ask, given that our entire system has been subverted to stop this one guy from becoming president again, or from serving effectively as president when he had the office, what is this about? Why do they monomaniacally hate Donald Trump so much? Oh, he's obnoxious. He's racist. Okay, right. It's not about that. Here's what it's actually about. Donald Trump challenged the reigning foreign policy orthodoxies as president. He infuriated the neocons who control the State Department and the Pentagon. When he briefly paused arms sales to sacred Ukraine, they impeached him for it. When he ordered troops out of Syria, as was his constitutional right as commander-in-chief, the Pentagon just ignored him. So it's hard not to see Trump's current indictment as an effort to make sure that he can never do anything like that again. He can never tamper with the one thing they care about most, which is their foreign policy, a foreign policy that has not served this country, which has in fact weakened it. Stephen Miller is a former senior advisor to Donald Trump. He's founder of America First Legal. He joins us tonight to assess. Stephen Miller, I just wonder what you think of that. I, I sort of came to that after watching this Trump saga for the last seven years. That seems to be the third rail, really, is the foreign policy questions. Yes, and I lived through it, Tucker. I lived through it by this man's side for those seven years. The moment that he got the nomination, we watched as the hidden power centers in this country came out from underneath their rocks and began to pull the strings that they control. They began to leak information designed to sabotage him at every turn. They began to use every organ of control they have in the intelligence community, the national security community, the law enforcement community, to try to control him and to control his presidency. Russia is the central example of this. They tried yes. desperately to keep him from pursuing detente with Russia. They tried desperately to keep him from holding that summit with Vladimir Putin to try to have a relationship between our two countries. Now, look what has happened now that he is out of office. We are on the brink of a world war, Tucker. As soon as they pushed him out of office, look what happened. We are now almost in a nuclear conflict over the borders of Ukraine. So you ask me, what is Donald Trump's crime? We know it's not a financial crime. We know it's not a campaign finance crime. His crime is refusing to bow or bend to the corrupt and rotten foreign policy establishment that is used to always, always get in their way in this country.
And, and, and that has much greater control over our system than I think any of us appreciate. I mean, you look at John Cornyn, the Republican senator from Texas, who I think most people, I'll speak for myself, sort of assumed he was kind of conservative. And then you realize, when you view it through the lens of what's happening in Ukraine, John Cornyn and Mitch McConnell and Tom Tillis and almost every Republican senator is a screaming liberal, actually. And if it weren't for foreign policy, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that they are completely aligned with Chuck Schumer and the Democrats and Joe Biden. So there really is a uniparty on these, the most important questions. Well, there's obviously an ideological disease that courses through Washington when it comes to foreign policy and the sacrifice of our interest to foreign nations and foreign profits. But it's even deeper than that. And I know this because I also worked on the Hill for almost a yes. decade. The intelligence community is able to manipulate the intelligence process and their relationship with lawmakers in order to obtain the answers that they want from Congress. So when it comes to an issue like the Patriot Act, they can leak what they need to leak. They can push the narratives they need to push. They can manufacture the threats they need to manufacture. And they can work the relationships that they have in order to obtain the outcome that they want. And that has always been true on foreign policy for many, many, many years. Then Donald Trump comes up onto the scene of Washington, a man with whom they have no relationship, a man who has no affinity for them, who doesn't care about them, who doesn't value what they value. And this for them is a panic moment. It is a panic yeah. moment. And we are now living in the seventh year of that panic, turning our entire democracy upside down. And I will tell you, if a prosecutor in Manhattan can take control of our entire presidential election process, then by what definition can we say that we even have a democracy in this country? Right. No, I mean, we were mocked, I thought, justly by the president of El Salvador yesterday. He said, we're not going to take any more lectures about democracy from a country that interferes in its own elections like this. And, and unfortunately, he's right. He is. Stephen Amen. Miller, great to see you tonight. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Tucker. Okay, a lot of great stuff in Claremont Review of Books. This is going to shock you. Be prepared. The lights are going off in South Africa. So this is Helen Andrews writing in the Claremont Review of Books. She's reviewing The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning. So one uh, failing black farmer says, we, we blacks saw businesses we thought had no challenges, but we were lying to ourselves. Wow, did you realize that businesses have challenges? There you have it in a nutshell. Black South Africans thought their white neighbors were rich because of the things they had. As it turned out, nice things didn't stay nice for very long without the codes of behavior that kept them nice. Being a white South African looked very easy from the outside, but it turned out to depend on a lot of little habits that, even with the best will in the world, would have been hard to explain in advance. So why is getting up early to mow your lawn, for example, a better moral quality in a neighbor than staying up late at a party? So a lot of people who don't live in America think that Americans have it easy. They don't realize how hard Americans have to work. Nowhere is this gulf more evident than in South Africa's political leadership. Whatever you want to say about the old National Party of the Boers, they were not personally corrupt. The ANC, shockingly, is presided over a frenzy of corruption. Right? The end of apartheid has unleashed a frenzy of personal enrichment. The current president of South Africa 
has a stated net worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, he makes Joe Biden look like a piker. Right? Punishment for corruption in South Africa is rare. Uh, former President Jacob Zuma is unusual in having been prosecuted for and convicted of money laundering. During his trial, he protested that uh, corruption is only a crime in a Western paradigm. Well, would better leaders have saved South Africa after the end of apartheid? Is a standard argument. Nelson Mandela was a great man. So Dubbo Mbeki and his successors screwed it all up. If we could only find another leader as awesome as Mandela, everything would be fine. This is unlikely. Consider ESCOM, the embattled utility unable to provide reliable power. What could a new Mandela do about rampant theft from the company's warehouses where valuable replacement parts are found stripped of their copper and left useless? Or about the refusal of many customers, including the vast majority of Sowetans, to pay their bills? 1984, when the apartheid government tried to make one neighborhood of delinquent customers pay high electricity bills, the resulting riot led to three local officials being hacked to death and their bodies burned in the street. Imagine if one day the international community decided that Latin Americans should be able to vote in American elections since our economy depends on their labor and their fates are affected by U.S. policies. So the counter-argument would have nothing to do with whether Latin Americans are good people or possess human rights. It would be that they outnumber us more than two to one and would, by sheer numbers, rendered native voters null overnight. So this was the old case for apartheid, strictly mathematical. As long as blacks were 80% of the population and voting is a solid racial bloc, it'd be folly to put the two communities into one democracy. So the argument that borders are the moral equivalent of apartheid is not just theoretical, it is being made today. The quality of life we enjoy in America is the result of exclusion. Otherwise, entire favelas would pack up and move here. On what moral basis do we keep them out? Do the people of Latin America not deserve nice things? One might ask, why can't Latin Americans have nice things in their own country? But the answer would be that it is somehow our fault. Certainly, it's not anything that Latin Americans are doing. That would imply that they are incapable of sustaining nice things like electricity. That would be racist. Eventually, the only reply to these liberal gotchas is to say that foreigners can't have our country because it's ours. Well, that is precisely the kind of moral claim that the current left would like to deprive Americans of the authority to make. So when people say America is becoming more like South Africa, they usually mean that California can't keep the lights on, private security is a booming business for middle-class neighborhoods in Baltimore and Portland. That's all part of it, but the most South African thing about our politics is the current effort to push white Americans into that same position as permanently powerless scapegoats. Then a uh, good essay and latest Claremont review of books on California's political dysfunction. So this has been the gloomiest winter in history in Southern California. And California is currently experiencing both a drought emergency and a flood emergency, says the Department of Water Resources director. So our state is afflicted by too little water and too much water simultaneously. So... What is the whole point of having a Department of Water Resources? You'd think they'd be able to turn this coincidence into a happy one. So the whole California State Water Project system remains unfinished since the 1970s. It's been far more litigating and planning than building state water projects, despite the fact that California's population has doubled between 1970 and 2020. So we have a cycle of droughts and floods 
And the negative effects of these things owe much less to capricious nature than to failed governance. The core problem is that California policy emphasizes boosting fish populations over meeting human needs. It's come to favor water scarcity as a means to limit growth and to force changes in the way we live. So we could expand water storage throughout the state, both above and below the Earth's surface, so that rainfall and snowmelt is preserved for future use, rather than allowing it to drain into the Pacific Ocean or overflowing riverbanks. The reason that we don't do this is a failure of governance. California has 12 desalination plants in operation, but uh, the state is ambivalent about adding more. And they've been rejecting plans, plans to add more. One water company spent $100 million on application for a water desalination plant, and it was rejected. Californians are told to make conservation a way of life. They may fairly ask why competency cannot be made a way of life in California government. Right? This state once amazed the world with its freeways and bridges. It's now wasted 15 years and $10 billion building a high-speed rail system that may never carry a single passenger. So the more money the state, the counties, and the city spend to prevent homeless people from sleeping on sidewalks and in parks, the worse the homeless problem gets. There's no public responsibility so basic down to thwarting shoplifters and reckless drivers that California's government hasn't lost the ability or the will to discharge it. 2018, 70% of Los Angeles County voters approved Measure W, a ballot proposition to raise property taxes for the purpose of improving facilities that capture and treat water. So the county has collected $556 million as a result of this ballot proposition. It has only spent $95 million. It's hardly built anything. It'll take half a century to complete the work. But uh, politicians have more money to play with. This was a bait-and-switch scam. Votes were secured on the promise of addressing the public's greatest concern, drought relief, through enhanced rainfall and snowmelt capture. But the ballot proposition was worded so that the money would be available for a whole range of vaguely water-related purposes, and these priorities would reflect public officials' preferences rather than the public's. So whatever the voters thought, new water resources did not turn out to be the main focus of Measure W. So what else is in the news? I could play you Miranda Devine. I don't think I want to play you Miranda Devine. The Douglas Mackey case we told you about at the top of the show really does seem like a turning point for the country. The hallmark of a free society is freedom of speech. You can say what you believe. You don't have to hide what's on your conscience. And above all, you can mock the people in charge. They have to take it because it's not their country. They share it with you. It belongs to all of us. But the hallmark of tyrants is a total lack of sense of humor, for one, and an utter intolerance for dissent. And so to see a man sent to 10 years in prison, and that's what Doug Mackey is facing in the wake of his conviction today, for making fun of Hillary Clinton, and then to see Hillary Clinton herself remain silent. Hillary Clinton apparently is okay with sending a man to prison for 10 years for making fun of her. If you ever wondered whether she's a cruel and horrible person, the answer is yes, she is. And to see the media remain silent in the face of the most basic of all human rights being violated like this. 
lets you know they're on the side of the U.S. government, the Biden administration, punishing people for mocking the party in charge with 10 years in prison. We're not overstating this. We don't think we're getting overheated. We really think this is a pivot point in the history of the United States. Molly Hemingway is editor-in-chief of The Federalist. She joins us with her reaction to what we're seeing in the Doug Mackey case. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I'm not sure I've seen anything scarier than this. It's pathetic and sick that this was ever even investigated, that it was prosecuted, and that there are people in New York who care so little about the things that make our country unique that they would vote to convict this person. You know, it just seems like we don't have a country, we don't have rules, we don't have laws. The only thing we have is whether you're with the regime or against the regime. That's and right. if you're with the regime, you can do anything. You can lay siege to the White House and injure 60 Secret Service officers. You can lay siege to a federal courthouse in Oregon for months. You can burn down cities. You can, you know, create the Russia collusion hoax and you'll get awards for it. You can come up with a smear false about, um, you know, a justice, uh, someone who's nominated to the Supreme Court being a serial gang rapist and nothing will happen to you. Uh, you can even make jokes about when to vote and how to vote on Election Day. We see that all the time from people on the left. But if you're on the right, if you upset the regime, um, you know, all bets are off and anything can happen. They're breaking the uniparty, I would say, because almost no Republicans have stood up for Doug Mackey today, just for the record. Some have, but very few. Um, the people in charge in Washington are breaking so many things completely, so many fundamental systems that have kept this country afloat and allowed it to thrive for hundreds of years. So you sort of wonder, what do they, what do they think the next stage is here? If you put people in prison for making fun of Hillary Clinton, like what happens next? It is really remarkable how much has been destroyed because of the left's refusal to accept in 2016 that people did not support the, per the candidate that they supported. They're willing That's to right. burn everything down. They're willing to destroy the country. They're willing to break every precedent and norm because they're still having this temper tantrum and they are fearful that the people might still have a say in it. But that's precisely what needs to happen is that the people need to have a say. They need to be able to oust these people from office and positions of power. They need to get their country back. This, what we have is so precious. What we had is so precious here, you know, from First Amendment protections to an understanding of constitutional due process. And we cannot let people's hatred and obsession take that away from us. And where are the leaders of the Republican Party? I mean, where's George W. Bush and Jeb Bush and Karl Rove and all the people who are lecturing us on the op-ed page of the Wall Street Journal about what we should do and not do? Like, what, they're all welcome on the show anytime to stand up against the destruction of the First Amendment. I haven't heard any of them even weigh in on this, and certainly not with outrage, which is warranted. People need, people need to speak loudly and people need to understand how serious the threats are that we're facing right now and how, yeah. you know, when, when you see this happening in other countries, this type of persecution of people, bad things happen and people who care about this country should speak loudly about it. I, I agree with that. Have to. In this case, and by the way, anyone who doubts its significance, look at the details. And I think any, any clean conscience, any decent person will be shocked by what the government did today. Molly Hemingway, thank you so thank much. You. I agree with uh, Tucker. There's a good case of getting outraged over Doug Mackey being convicted for posting memes. It's uh, ridiculous. So let me see if Tucker's got anything more to say here. So as the Republican frontrunner in the presidential race gets indicted on fake charges, Washington refuses to prosecute Democrats who commit felonies 
felonies that actually have changed the country forever, really hurt the country. People like Toria Newland, who has brought us to the brink of a nuclear war. What about people like that? We'll consider it next. Okay, so I provided some hate porn. Let's uh, calm down here. Significant progress through CBT alone are very remote, okay? But I'm not completely condemning CBT here. I do believe it can be really useful for less severe anxiety conditions, but only when used with skilled approaches that work directly to calm feelings right down. So here are three simple techniques that focus on the thinking and behaving part of a person to help them take back control when they've been feeling anxious. So CBT technique one is focus on how the feelings will change. It's very simple. So I'll often remind clients that feelings are fluid and inevitably change. So even if after all the relaxed mental rehearsal work that we've done with the clients, they find themselves starting to feel a little anxious in a situation, I want them to be thinking about what their feelings will be once they've started to feel better again, specifically focusing on that expected change. So it might help to write down those expected changes in a few words. So for example, if they're um, nervous about a presentation, they might write down something like, um, I'm feeling somewhat nervous, which is natural. When those feelings change, I expect to feel calm and clear headed again. So they've given themselves a blueprint, a template for what to expect. So on top of this, I'll ask them to imagine what the very first little sign might be that those alterations in feeling are starting to happen because they will inevitably happen. Okay. So they might tell me that they, um, they'll find themselves speaking more spontaneously to their audience, or it might be um, helpful to write those words down too. Okay. So feelings always shift. And even just remembering that is really useful. Having your client write or think about how they expect their feelings to improve and the very first little indications that anxiety is morphing into calm, take that concept to the next level. So all good psychological interventions help change expectations. And this technique is no exception. Okay. Now the next um, technique can be applied in lots of different ways and is more uh, behavioral than cognitive. So the second CBT technique is chew it over and act normal. Okay. So anxiety is a survival response, as you know, it's not an illness, but it's a response that can go wrong sometimes to the point that it hinders rather than helps like a guard dog that feels like it's helping, even as it bites the leg of the friendly postman or mailman or the little old lady next door. So your anxiety response kicks in because it senses a threat, even though that perceived threat may not actually be a real threat at all. So one way to train anxiety to be selective and um, behave itself is to give it feedback to let it know that thanks, but you're not needed right now. Okay. Because anxiety takes its lead from what clients do. Okay. As well as simple emotional pattern matching. So if the client acts in ways they wouldn't act in a real emergency, the anxiety will fade away. For example, during an emergency, we wouldn't um, talk softly and calmly. We wouldn't smile. We wouldn't salivate. We wouldn't breathe deeply and we wouldn't have open body posture. Okay, now if we adopt purpose, purposefully adopt some of these behaviors or even just one of these behaviors, when we begin to feel stressed, then we're altering the feedback loop. We're, we're, we're sending the feedback back to our uh, sympathetic nervous system, the fear response, that it's not needed, that all is fine, good and well. We send it a message, see if there was a real threat, I wouldn't be salivating. I wouldn't be talking normally. I wouldn't be breathing out for longer than I breathe in. So something even the most anxious client can easily do is chew gum or even just imagine they are. Right. Chewing gum uh, is a great way to calm down, reduce anxiety. So have you guys checked out Rabbit Hole, the new Kiefer Sutherland series? It is fantastic. Absolutely gripping. Great fun. 
what else am I watching? There's a new reality show, well, documentary show on Netflix, Emergency NYC. So it's about uh, emergency rooms in New York City. It's absolutely gripping. Then I've also been watching New Amsterdam, which is a dramatic series. I'm now on season two, episode 15, about uh, a new hospital administrator and the, the good things that he does. So I find it important to have like some uplift in, in my TV or movie watching. I, I mean, last year, I remember trying to watch Yellow Jackets and it was just so unpleasant. It was just so painful that uh, I gave up watching Yellow Jackets. But when I watch New Amsterdam, it makes me feel better. When I watch Emergency New York City, I'm, I'm inspired. Also, the latest season of Succession is, is great. I'm also watching the new series Lucky Hank, which is based on a Richard Russo novel. So I think I've read all of Richard Russo's novel. So Lucky Hanks does uh, Bob Odenkirk. And the new season of Ted Lasso. Third season, really enjoying the third season of uh, Ted Lasso. But I think of everything I'm watching, Succession is, is the best. But I need that uplift. So New Amsterdam, very uplifting network TV show. So it's not as not as etchy as, um, you know, the HBO stuff. Just recently read uh, two books on HBO. Ah, man, Tucker is on a roll talking about the, the new protected class. So let's uh, get a little bit of Tucker Carlson here. Really knows how to put on a compelling show. The hallmark of tyranny is the total distortion of justice. Differences of opinion become felonies for which you can be imprisoned, while actual crimes are described as just business as usual, the way that we do things. And so even as we're trying to throw people in prison for criticizing the Democratic Party, we are allowing people who've hurt this country profoundly to ascend up the ladder of success. There are a million examples of this, but we pick one tonight. Toria Newland, who's one of the leaders of the State Department, the architect, by the way, of our current war with Russia, was also the architect of the war in Iraq. Now, that war began under false pretenses. More than a million people died for no reason, and it destroyed ancient Christian communities in Iraq. Before the war, there were about a million and a half Christians in that country. Now just a few hundred thousand are left. But Newland was never held to account for any of this. In fact, she was praised and then she was promoted. So she went back into government service and she was caught on tape orchestrating a coup in Ukraine. We're not making this up. Here's the tape from 2014. Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think, that's, you know? I think that's right. Okay. So that's the lady who lectures us about democracy, subverting democracy in a foreign country, getting caught and then getting an even better job and then pushing another pointless war on our country, this one against Russia. She's one of the architects of this war. Newland is driving this nation into a conflict against both Russia and China. We can't win that war. We will lose that war. It will destroy our country. But Toria Newland has never been punished for any of this. Once again, she's been promoted. 
The destruction that she has wrought is really almost beyond fiction. Here she is bragging about blowing up critical infrastructure in Europe. Watch. Senator Cruz, uh, like you, I am, and I think the administration is very gratified to know that Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. That's just disgusting. And yet no one says a word about it. What does it take to get indicted in Washington? Well, if you're Tory Newland, of course, you know you will never be indicted for anything. You'll get some sort of glass ceiling breaking award for women at the State Department. In Washington, you only risk indictment and punishment if you dare to criticize people like Tory Newland. And that's the real lesson of what's happening to Donald Trump and his supporters. Their real sin was opposing the people in charge and particularly in opposing their foreign policy. So using the legal system to stop a political rival in a presidential race is the gravest possible attack on our country's core institutions, the ones that matter. It's election interference. It's an actual threat to democracy. You'd think someone would care. But Nancy Pelosi is celebrating it. Last night she wrote this, the most revealing quote ever on social media. Here it is. No one is above the law, and everyone has the right to a trial to prove innocence. To prove innocence? No. In a free country, this country, the government has to prove guilt. You are innocent until you are proven guilty. But Nancy Pelosi inverts it. Prove your innocence, criminal. And she believes that. They all believe that. You are guilty the moment they come after you, just as in the Soviet Union. And good luck proving your innocence. So you have to ask, where are the adults? Has anyone in authority on the Democratic side, on the neoliberal side, stood up not for Donald Trump, not for Douglas Mackey, but for our country. We watched carefully today. We didn't hear a single one. Glenn Greenwald has long reported on the political abuses of the legal system. He is the host of System Update on Rumble and our friend. He joins us tonight. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Tucker. Have a good job, everyone. Bye bye.